Section 33 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3. The Great Explorers and Travelers of the 19th Century, by Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter 2, Part 2 french circumnavigators nine the season was now advancing and no time was to be lost if the explorers wished to take advantage of the best season for doubling cape horn on the eighth january eighteen twenty six therefore the two vessels once more put to sea and rounded the cape without any mishap though landing at the falklands was rendered impossible by fog and contrary winds Anchor was cast on the 28th March in the roadstead of Rio Janeiro, and, as it turned out, at a time most favorable, the emperor, says Bougainville, was upon a journey at the time of our arrival, and his return was the occasion of fates and receptions which roused the population to activity, and broke for a time the monotony of ordinary life in Rio, the dullest and dreariest of towns to the foreigner its environs however are charming nature hasn't them been lavish of her riches and the vast harbour the atlantic rendezvous of the commercial world presents a most animated scene innumerable ships either standing in or getting under weight small craft cruising about a ceaseless roar of cannon from the forts and men-of-war exchanging signals on the occasion of some anniversary or the celebration of some festival of the church whilst visits were constantly being exchanged between the officers of the various foreign vessels and the diplomatic agents of foreign powers at the court of rio the division set sail again on the eleventh april and arrived at brest on the twenty fourth june eighteen twenty six without having put into port since it left rio janeiro we must remember that if bougainville did not make any discoveries on this voyage he had no formal instructions to do so his mission being merely to unfurl the flag of france where it had as yet been rarely seen none the less do we owe to this general officer some very interesting and in some cases new information on the countries visited by him some of the surveys made by his expedition may be of service to navigators and it must be owned that the hydrographical researches which alone could be undertaken in the absence of scientific men were carefully made and resulted in the obtaining of numerous and accurate data we can but sympathize with the commander of the tetis in his expression of regret in the preface to his journal that neither the government nor the academie des sciences had seen fit to turn his expedition to account to obtain new results supplementary of the rich harvest gleaned by his predecessors the expedition next sent out under the command of captain dumont d'urville was merely intended by the minister to supplement and consolidate the mass of scientific data collected by captain duperey in his voyage from eighteen twenty two to eighteen twenty four as second in command to duperey and the originator and organizer of the new exploring expedition d'urville had the very first claim to be appointed to his command the portions of oceania he proposed to visit were new zealand 
the Fiji Islands, the Loyalty Islands, New Britain and New Guinea, all of which he considered urgently to demand the consideration alike of the geographer and the traveller. What he effected in this direction we shall ascertain by following him step by step. An interest of another character also attaches to this trip, but it will be well to quote on this point the instructions given to the navigator. An American captain, writes the Minister of Marine, said that he saw in the hands of the natives of an isol situated between new caledonia and the luciate archipelago a cross of san luis and some medals which he imagined to be relics of the wrecked vessel of the celebrated le perouse whose loss is so deeply and justly regretted this is of course but a feeble reason for hoping that some of the victims of the disaster still survive but you sir will give great satisfaction to his majesty if you are the means of restoring any one of the poor shipwrecked mariners to their native land after so many years of misery and exile the aims of the expedition were therefore manifold and by the greatest chance it was able to achieve them nearly all d'urville received his appointment in december eighteen twenty five and was permitted himself to choose all who were to accompany him he named as second-in-command lieutenant jacquinot and as scientific collaborators messieurs quoy and guimard who had been on board the orani and as surgeon primavere leçon the coquille the excellent qualities of which were well known to d'urville was the vessel selected and the commander having named her the astrolabe in memory of la perouse embarked in her a crew of twenty-four men anchor was weighted on the twenty-fifth of april and the mountains of toulon with the coast of france were soon out of sight after touching at gibraltar the astrolabe stopped at tenerife to take in fresh provisions before crossing the atlantic and d'urville took advantage of this delay to ascend the peak accompanied by messieurs quoy gaymart and several officers a bad road very arduous for pedestrians leading the first part of the way over fields of scoria though as laguna is approached the scenery improves this town of a considerable size contains but a small indolent and miserable population between matunza and oratara the vegetation is magnificent and the luxuriant foliage of the vine enhances the beauty of the view oratara is a small seaboard town with a port affording but little shelter it is well built and laid out and would be comfortable enough if the streets were not so steep as to make traffic all but impossible after three quarters of an hour's climb through well-cultivated fields the frenchmen reached the chestnut tree region beyond which begin the clouds taking the form of a thick moist fog very disagreeable to the traveller farther on comes the first region beyond which the atmosphere again becomes clear vegetation disappears the ground becomes poorer and more barren here are met with the composed lava scorion and pumice stones in great abundance whilst below stretches away the boundless sea of clouds thus far hidden by clouds or by the lofty mountains surrounding it the peak at last stands forth distinctly the incline becomes less steep and those vast plains of intensely melancholy appearance called canadas by the spanish on account of their bareness are crossed 
a halt is made for lunch at the pine grotto before climbing the huge blocks of basalt ranged in a circle about the crater now filled in with ashes from the peak and forming its insane the peak itself is next attached the ascent of which is broken one-third of the way up by a sort of esplanade called the estancia de los iglesias here our travellers pass the night not perhaps quite so comfortably as they would have done in their berths but without suffering too much from the feeling of suffocation experienced by other explorers the fleas however were very troublesome and their unremitting attacks kept the commander awake all night at four a m the ascent was resumed and a second esplanade called the alta vista was soon reached beyond which all trace of a path disappears the rest of the ascent being over rough leva as far as the cahora cone with here and there in the shade patches of unmelted snow the peak itself is very steep and its ascent is rendered yet more arduous by the pumice stone which rolls away beneath the feet at thirty-five minutes past six says monsieur de Mondeurville, we arrived at the summit of the chahora which is evidently a half extinct crater its sides are thin and sloping it is from sixty to eighty feet deep and the whole surface is strewn with fragments of obsidian pumice stone and lava sulfurous vapor forming a kind of crown of smoke is emitted from it whilst the atmosphere at the bottom is perfectly cool at the summit of the peak the thermometer marked eleven degrees but in my opinion it was affected by the presence of the fumaroles for when at the bottom of the crater it fell rapidly from nineteen degrees in the sun to nine and a half in the shade the descent was accomplished without accident by another road enabling our travellers to examine the cueva de la nive and to visit the forest of aquagarcia watered by a limpid stream and in which d'urville made a rich collection of botanical specimens in major Megliorini's rooms at santa cruz the commander was shown together with a number of weapons shells animals fish etc a complete mummy of a guanche said to be that of a woman the corpse was sewn up in skins and seemed to be that of a woman five feet four high with regular features and large hands the sepulchral caves of the guanches also contained earthenware wooden vases triangular seals of baked clay and a great number of small discs of the same material strung together like chaplets which may have been used by this extinct race for the same purposes as the quipos of the peruvians on the twenty first june the australip once more set sail and touched at la praia and at the cape verde islands where d'urville had hoped to meet captain king who would have been able to give him some valuable hints on the navigation of the coast of new guinea king however had left la praia thirty-six hours previously and the astrolabe therefore resumed her voyage the next day i e on the thirtieth june on the last day of july the rocks of martin vas and trinity island were sighted and the latter appearing perfectly barren a little dried up grass and a few groups of stunted trees dotted about amongst the rocks being the only signs of vegetation d'urville had been very anxious to make some botanical researches on this desert island but the surf was so rough that he was afraid to risk a boat in it 
On the 4th August, the Australia sailed over the spot laid down as Saxenborg Island, which ought to be finally erased from French as it has been from English charts, and after a succession of squalls, which tried her sorely, she arrived off St. Paul and Amsterdam Islands, finally anchoring on the 7th October in King George Sound on the coast of Australia. In spite of the roughness of the sea and constant bad weather throughout his voyage of 108 days, D'Urville had carried on all his usual observations on the height of the waves, which he estimated at 80 and occasionally as much as 100 feet, off Needlebank, the temperature of the sea at various depths, etc. Captain Jacquinot, having found a capital supply of fresh water on the right bank of Princess Royal Harbour, and at a little distance a site suitable for the erection of an observatory, the tents were soon pitched by the sailors, and several officers made a complete tour of the bay, whilst others opened relations with the aborigines, one of whom was induced to go on board, though it was only with the greatest difficulty that he was persuaded to throw away his banksia, a cone used to retain heat and to keep the stomach and the front part of the body warm. He remained quietly enough on board for two days, however, eating and drinking in front of the kitchen fire. In the meantime, his fellow countrymen on land were peaceable and well disposed, even bringing three of their children into the camp. During this halt, a boat arrived manned by eight Englishmen, who asked to be taken on board as passengers, and told such a very improbable story of having been deserted by their captain that d'urville suspected them of being escaped convicts a suspicion which became a conviction when he saw the wry faces they made at his proposal to send them back to port jackson the next day however one took a berth as sailor and two were received as passengers whilst the other five decided to remain on land and drag out a miserable existence amongst the natives all this time hydrographical and astronomical observations were being made and the hunters and naturalists were trying to obtain specimens of new varieties of fauna and flora the delays extending to october twenty fourth enabled the explorers to regain their strength after their trying voyage to make the necessary repairs take in wood and water draw up a map of the whole neighborhood and to collect numerous botanical and zoological specimens his observations of various kinds made d'urville wonder that the english had not yet founded a colony on king george's sound admirably situated as it is not only for vessels coming direct from europe but for those trading between the cape and china or bound for the sunda islands and delayed by the monsoons the coast was explored as far as westport preferred by d'urville to port dalrymple the latter being a harbour always difficult and often dangerous either to enter or to leave westport moreover was as yet only known from the reports of bodin and flinders and it was therefore better worth exploring than a more frequented district the observations made in king george's sound were therefore repeated at westport resulting in the following conclusions it affords says d'urville an anchorage alike easy to reach and to leave the bottom is firm and wood is abundant and easily procurable in a word when a good supply of fresh water is found and that will probably be soon 
Westport will rise to a position of great importance in a channel such as Bass's Straits, when the winds often blow strongly from one quarter for several days together, the currents at the same time rendering navigation difficult. From November 19th to December 2nd, the Australia cruised along the coast, touching only at Jervis Bay, remarkable for its magnificent eucalyptus forests. The reception given to the French at Port Jackson by Governor Darling and the colonial authorities was nonetheless cordial for the fact that the visits made by D'Urville to various parts of New Holland had greatly amazed the English government. During the last three years, Port Jackson had increased greatly in size and improved in appearance. Though the population of the whole colony only amounted to 50,000, and that in spite of the constant foundation of new english settlements the commander took advantage of his stay in sydney to forward his dispatches to france together with several cases of natural history specimens this done and a fresh stock of provisions have been laid in he resumed his voyage it would be useless to linger with dumont d'urville at new south wales to the history of which and its condition in eighteen twenty six he devotes a whole volume of his narrative we have already given a detailed account of it and it will be better to leave sydney with our traveller on the nineteenth december and follow him to tasman bay through calms headwinds currents and tempests which prevented his reaching new zealand before the fourteenth january eighteen twenty seven tasman bay first seen by cook on his second voyage had never yet been explored by any expedition and on the arrival of the astrolabe a number of canoes containing some score of natives most of them chiefs approached these natives were not afraid to climb on board some remaining several days whilst later rivals drew up within reach and a brisk trade was opened meanwhile several officers climbed through the thick firs clothing the hills overlooking the bay and the following is d'urville's verdict on the desolate scene which met their view not a bird not an insect not even a reptile to be seen the solemn melancholy silence is unbroken by the voice of any living creature from the summit of these hills the commander saw new bay that known as admiralty which communicates by a current with that in which the astrolabe was anchored and he was anxious to explore it as it seemed safer than that of tasman but the currents several times brought his vessel to the very verge of destruction and had the australia been driven upon the rocky coast the whole crew would have perished and not so much as a trace of the wreck would have been left at last however d'urville succeeded in clearing the passage with no farther loss than that of a few bits of the ship's keel to celebrate says the narrative the memory of the passage of the astrolabe i conferred upon this dangerous strait the name of the pass de france french pass but unless in a case of great necessity i should not advise anyone else to attempt it we could now look calmly at the beautiful basin in which we found ourselves and which certainly deserves all the praise given to it by cook i would specially recommend a fine little harbour some miles to the south of the place where the captain cast anchor our navigation of the Pas de france had definitely settled the insular character of the whole of the district 
terminating in the Cape Stephens of Cook. It is divided from the mainland of Tewahi Punamup by the current basin. The comparison of our chart with that of the strait as laid down by Cook will suffice to show how much he left to be done. The astrolabe soon entered Cook's Strait, and sailing outside Queen Charlotte's Bay, doubled Cape Palliser, a headland formed of some low hills. D'Urville was greatly surprised to find that a good many inaccuracies had crept into the work of the great English navigator, and in that part of the account of his voyage which relates to hydrography, he calls instances of errors of a fourth or even a third of a degree. The commander then resolved to make a survey of the eastern side of the northern island Ika Namawi. On this island pigs were to be found, but no panamon, the green jade which the New Zealanders use in the manufacture of their most valuable tools. Strange to say, however, jade is to be found on the southern island, but there are no pigs. Two natives of the island, who had expressed a wish to remain on board the corvette, became quite low-spirited as they watched the coast of the district where they lived disappear below the horizon they then began to repent but too late the intrepidity which had prompted them to leave their native shores for intrepid they justly deserved to be called seeing that again and again they asked the french sailors if they were not to be eaten and it took several days of kind treatment to dispel this fear from their minds Derville continued to sail northward, up the coast, until the capes, named by Cook, Turn Again and Kidnappers, had been doubled, and sterile island with its Ipah came in sight. In the Bay of Tolaga, as Cook called it, the natives brought alongside the corvette pigs and potatoes, which they readily exchanged for articles of little value. On other canals approaching, the New Zealanders, who were on board the vessel, urged the commander to fire upon and kill their fellow countrymen in the boats but as soon as the latter climbed up to the deck the first arrivals advanced to greet them with earnest assurances of friendship conduct so strangely inconsistent is the outcome of the compound of hatred and jealousy mutually entertained for each other by these tribes they all desire to appropriate to themselves exclusively whatever advantage may be obtained from the visits of foreigners and they are distressed at the prospect of their neighbors getting any share proof was soon afforded that this explanation is the right key to their behavior upon the astrolabe were several new zealanders but among them was a certain shaki who was recognized as a chief by his tall stature his elaborate tattooing and respectful manner in which he was addressed by his fellow islanders seeing a canoe meant by not more than seven or eight men approaching the corvette this shaki and the rest came to entreat d'urville most earnestly to kill the new arrivals going so far as to ask for muskets that they might themselves fire upon them however no sooner had the last comers arrived on board than all those who were there already overwhelmed them with courtesies while the shaki himself although he had been one of the most sanguinary completely changed his tone and made them a present of some axes he had just obtained after the chief men of a warlike and fierce appearance with faces tattooed all over had been a few minutes on board d'urville was preparing to ask them some questions with the aid of a vocabulary published by the missionaries when all at once they turned away from him 
leaped into their canoes and pushed out into the open sea this sudden move was brought about by their countrymen who for the purpose of getting rid of them slyly hinted that their lives were in danger as the frenchmen had formed a plot to kill them it was in the bay of tolaga the right name of which is hua hua that d'urville found the first opportunity of gaining some information about the kiwi by means of a mat decorated with the feathers of that bird such mats being articles of luxury among these islanders the kiwi is about the size of a small turkey and like the ostrich has not the power of flying it is hunted at night by the light of torches and with the assistance of dogs it is this bird which is also known under the name of the apteryx what the natives told d'urville about it was in the main accurate the apteryx with the tail of a fowl and a plumage of a reddish brown has an affinity to the ostrich it inhabits damp and gloomy woods and never comes out even in search of food except in the evening the incessant hunting of the natives has considerably diminished the numbers of this curious species and it is now very rare end of section thirty three